Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Well, you can have a seat uh, and check this out. And this is my best friend, Asani. I met this girl, Diane, in pre-K. In pre-K, she had an attitude. We weren't best friends like we are now. She was rude and sassy. Sassy. And when she left the school? To another school. I felt sorry that I didn't let her play with us. Because I was being bossy too. Like when we really started to be friends? Second grade. Second grade. There was this girl. There was this girl. I didn't let her touch my hair. Stop touching my hair. That's when she stood up for me. She let me touch it, so I touched it. Because she was really nice to me. Isabella was thinking of making a cheerleading team. They decided to add me in it. We picked Diane. Because they wanted to make a new friend. We are Panthers. We are That's how we became best friends. When we grew up, we'll still have the picture of us when we were younger. My name is Oliver Stern and I'm eight years old. And my name is Milo Pesca and I'm eight years old. My mom and his mom were both pregnant at the same time. I met him when he wasn't born. So when I came out, we became best friends. Simple as that. He's fun. He's nice. Nice. I'm more funny than you. Friends also fight a lot. This big of a fight. And I just say, stop. You just go back and forth. He thinks John Kasich will win. Oh, Kasich is going to win no. and Bernie Sanders. And I think Marco Rubio will win. I don't think Marco Rubio will win. He entertains me. I think I'm going to be an actor. And I want to be, he wants to be a lawyer. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Or maybe go to like um a bar and talk. When you are grown up, you can't be with your friends as much as when you were with a kid. We're not gonna see each other as much, right? We're gonna do a man's night. Holla. Man, that's, that's what we want, right? That, what a beautiful testament to best friends, and that's what we want, right? We all want friends who can stop other people from touching our hair when we don't want them to touch it. We all want friends that can join us on a man's night. Holla. Like, that's... That's what we want, right? That's, that's just a desire of our souls. That's, that's something that we want. We want a friendship that's worth celebrating, right? Why? Why do we want that? Well, the reality is that we all need people, right? Countless psychological studies have all found through time, history, across all cultures, that people need people, that we all are designed, we are all in need of positive bonds with other individuals, right? We're meant for community. For some of us, maybe that's just like a few friends, right? Maybe some of us just need a few people, a couple people. You maybe are just like, hey, one friend, two friends, done. You know, like that's it. (laughs) All done with friends. Like that's enough. Like that's enough for some of us. For some of us though, we don't need just a couple people. We need all the people, right? We need all, all the people. Like getting added to a group me is like your love language. You're like, yes. Let me have more people. Like, that's just where some of us are. But regardless of how many people exactly it is, the reality is that we all need people. We all want best friends. We all want the best 
community. Why? Because God has made us to be like this. When we look in scripture, we see that there was a creator who made us in his image, and part of that image is a desire for community, is a desire to have other people alongside of us. We're not meant to walk life alone, and yet even as we have those desires in the deepest portions of our soul, the, re, the trouble, the, the, the problem, the struggle is that many times we don't know exactly how that plays out. We don't know exactly, well, who's supposed to be in this community and how is this community supposed to behave, right? Because we've had friendships that are encouraging and wonderful. We've had friendships that are empowering. We've had friendships that are fun and faithful, that are trustworthy. We've had friendships that can be a source of joy and life to everyone. And yet we've also had friendships that are discouraging, that, that are, are, are disempowering, that are draining. We've had friendships that are, are, are boring and broken. And instead of it being this wonderful blessing, we find relationships or friendships that just wind up being a burden on our lives. So how do we find the best community? How do we discover and develop friendships that bring joy in life? How do we create and cultivate the best community? Well, what's beautiful is as we look in Scripture, we find some principles. We find some, moving, some movement forward. We find that there's, there are certain fundamental ideas that should be applied to any given community. And what's beautiful is that this allows us to have this solid kind of starting point for what we're looking for and what we're trying to create, right? Everything has a starting point, right? You have a starting point. I have a starting point. A&M had a starting point in 1876. Like we all started at some point in a relationship with the God of the universe, the God who provides peace and purpose. That relationship, its starting point is finding and following Jesus Christ. That's the starting point for the Christian life, for the Christian walk. And as we begin to follow after Jesus, right, it was something we've been talking about over the last three weeks. As we've been following after Jesus, we see that there's implications about God. There's implications about Jesus. There's implications about us as individuals. But there's also incredible implications about our community, about who we're walking alongside of. Because as we're following after Christ, he's going to call us to embrace and engage with the community of believers who are following him alongside of us, who are side by side in our pursuit of knowing him and making him known. And Hebrews 10 gives us this beautiful picture, this beautiful starting point for us as Christians, for us as believers, for us as people who have put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. It says, this is where you start. This is the who. This is the what. This is how you can find and facilitate a community that's worth committing to. The best kind of community. He starts in chapter 10, verse 21, saying that since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we should draw near with a sincere heart and the assurance that faith brings. Because we've had, we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed in pure water. The author of Hebrews is saying we can have confidence. This assurance is literally, he's talking about this, this, this purity of thought, this wholehearted like assurance that we can draw near to God. That's what he's talking about. He says we have an assurance that we can draw near to the God of the universe. Why? Because we have a high priest, because we have Jesus Christ who stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for our sake so that we can have relationship with the Lord with the God who loves us, with the God who sent his son to die for us. Jesus, he, he obtained that for us. 
And now he's our great high priest. He's the great mediator, the one who has bridged the gap that's brought us to our heavenly father. And so the author of Hebrews says we can be confident that we can draw near to him, right? That we can lean into that relationship. And what's beautiful is that as we do that, as we lean into that relationship, as we draw near to that person, the person of God, we will in fact draw nearer to one another, right? If we're all going after the same location, we're all gonna get closer and closer to each other just as a side effect, right? And that's why what's incredible is that our unity, it's a testimony, right? The unity that we can find as brothers and sisters in Christ is a testimony. It, it points to who God is, right? That's true of all areas of life. What, whoever you are, whatever kind of big diverse group that you find, that where you find unity, where you find belonging, that unity, that, that gathering, what it does is it, it points to the unifying agent, right? That's what we see on Saturdays, right? Yesterday, maybe you were there. You might have been a part of that crowd where you gather, you, you approach the field of battle, and you join in with your brothers and sisters in arms, and you stand there, you lock, well, you don't lock arms. Well, you do lock arms at one point, uh, but generally you just, you stand there, and you just stare at other college students, and you're just, you're just angry at them, right? Like, that's what you do. You show up to a football game, and you're all united in the sense that you're wearing the same color, you're kind of yelling the same stuff, and you all want those 19-year-olds down there to feel bad about themselves, right? Like, that's your goal, is we want to demolish this other team, and so as you unite around this just shared, just, ab, just complete uh, rage uh, against, you know, ooh la la, like you are then united, not only in just like your stance and in your attitude, but you begin to, you begin to say things. You, you adopt this new vocabulary. You, you will see someone down towards the front of the crowd do this like motion. And you're like, oh, it's beginning. Like it's happening, right? It has come upon us. And so what do you do? You say, pass it back, right? You say, pass it back, Ags. And everyone starts doing the same motion. They're like, okay, here it comes. Yeah, yeah, the swish, swish, pop, pop. Like, that's who, we're going to do that, yeah. And as you look around your midst, you're like, hey, yeah, we're united. Everyone's doing the same motion. Oh, wait, wait, wait. There's a few of us that are still wearing hats. So what do you do? You scream at them. You say, uncover. Like, you just, you just tell them, or you just knock that hat off. You say, never again. Like, you just get rid of it. Like you get that off. Why? Because it's impeding their unity, right? Like they have a hat on. Oh, I, don't I don't get it. But you just, they have to get rid of it. And then as soon as everyone is there, everyone's kind of done the motion, the hats are off, everyone's kind of ready to just be unified, there's one more piece, there's one more element. There's one more strange thing that gets yelled back through the crowd. Hump it! <laughs> and all of your friends are like, oh, do what? Like what? What are we doing? And you just know that you're like, no, 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 it goes back, back in the ancient days of the 1800s. There was an Aggie, there was an engineer who knew, he knew that the best way to project your voice, and maybe you didn't know this, but the best way to project your voice is to put yourself, like lean on your knees, and supposedly the airflow or diaphragm, something happens where you yell more yelly. I don't know. <laughs> And so you do it. So you look around this audience, all these people that were doing this motion and throwing their hats away. They're, suddenly they're all just, and then they, right? And you just go for it. And you yell and you're like, yeah, 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 we're gonna win. You guys are terrible, whatever. Yeah, and again, you just make 19, you make 19 year olds feel bad about themselves. Good for you. But that's, that's the goal, 
is you take in those moments, you unite, and what happens is as, as people watch that, right, as, as commentators like talking about it on TV or as visitors are in the visitor section just kind of staring at the, the madness, the towel-waving, maroon-wearing, 12th man sign pounding madness, they think, wow, these people love A&M, right? And they hate everyone else. <laughs> And that's what happens. And the unity that they display, the unity that we display, it points to the unifier, right? It doesn't end with ourself. It points to something greater. The unity that you experience, it's going to direct other people towards whatever is unifying you. I had a group of friends uh, when I was a senior in high school that we all kind of were coming to, to the faith uh, with, with just a high passion, uh, a high uh, fervor. We, uh, we had kind of, a lot of us had grown up in the church, and yet we kind of had these paths through high school where we had kind of chosen other ways. We've walked uh, other directions, other paths, and yet by the beginning of our senior year, we'd all kind of like come back at the same moment. And so there were 20 or 30 of us that were in this Bible study together, and we were just on fire for the Lord. We wanted to know God. We wanted to make God known. We wanted to study scripture. We wanted to discuss these things. We wanted to point people towards Jesus. That, that was our goal. And so as we were meeting together, we would bring others in. We would be constantly inviting other friends to join us. And I remember bringing one of my best friends from high school. I brought him to one of the Bible studies. He says, you gotta come. We're gonna talk about Jesus. Like, I, he, it wasn't something that he had any really background in. He wasn't establishing that at all. But I was like, but hey, you should come and just come be a part of this community. Please come and, and, and experience this with me. And so he came with me. And I will never forget the first week he came in. He kind of watched us all sort of interacting and talking with each other at the start of the evening. And he kind of, at one point, he just sort of pulled me aside. I was checked in. I was like, hey, you doing all right? You doing okay? He's like, yeah. It's like, it's just, it's really weird how much you love each other. Like he said that verbatim. It's really weird how much you love each other. And, and he came back. Right? Again, he had no skin in the game. Like he wasn't invested. He wasn't following after Jesus. But he said, man, there's a community there that's different. And it's weird. And it's compelling. And it was something he wanted to be a part of. It was something that he was interested in. You see, we should be united in such a way that the world looks at us and they should be confused. And they should be convicted by the way that we love each other. Our unity as a body should direct people to the God who loves diversity. The God who loves unity. Right, God made us, we talked about this last week, but God made us to be unique. He's given, a, he's given us gifts, he's given us abilities, he's designed us in these beautifully different ways. And all of this with the purpose that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That every tribe, tongue, every people, every nation would gather around the unifying idea that Jesus is Lord. That's what our unity is, or that's what our diversity is headed towards. It's that beautiful unifying moment where it's not that God wipes away all of our background and all of our cultural heritage. He doesn't wipe away who we are as individuals. Instead, he brings that in and he just amplifies it. He says, I want to unlock within you these abilities and these gifts that I've given you. I've designed you with a purpose. How beautiful is that? That our identities are not lost, but they're refined. They're amplified by belonging to the family of God, by being adopted out of sin and death into his family as, as his sons and daughters. He says, man, I want, to, I want to use the diversity to make something better. Right? That's what we can lean into. 
That's what we can point people towards, a God who loves unity. That's why we should look for opportunities to unify with people that are different from us. I love spending time with other people from around the I love spending time with other ministers. Just Thursday, I got together with all these different college ministers from around town, and we got together just to pray, to pray for you, and to pray for our campus, to pray for our community. And I love Mitchell Welsh at Antioch. And I love Wes Wilkinson at Central. And I love Alan Duty at New Life. And I love these men and these women who God has equipped and brought into our community to be his lights, to be his shepherds, to his people. I love joining in with Chris Shepherd from Browsers Fellowship for the purpose of bringing others to Christ. I love the fact that we have this diverse collection where unity is still found because we all want to further the name of Jesus. That's why next week, we're not meeting in here. We're not going to open those doors, because we want, as a college ministry, to unify, to join in with the grace body as a whole. We're going to go across the street at 9.15 and at 11, and we're going to partner, we're going to join, we're going to, we're going to merge in with all of our adults, with all of our families, in seeking to know God and to make him known. And we're going to hear Brian Fisher, our senior pastor, is going to be talking with another pastor from our area about diversity and about how God can be glorified through the unity that's found through Jesus Christ, through the walls and barriers that are simply just broken down by the truth that Jesus died for all. No matter what your race or background or ethnicity or or future direction or major might be. It says, man, Jesus died for the world. Let's rally behind that truth. Let's gather together in that pursuit. And that's why I love things like membership. It's taking place on October 1st at our Southwood campus. You can be a member of the body at Grace so that you can more fully lean into, so you can more fully embrace the, the unity that God creates in the midst of diversity. And yet there's something that holds us back. Right? Even as I was thinking about this, even as I was preparing this this week, I was, just, I, I was wrestling with this idea that, man, it's, it's easy to say how, like, yeah, like we should all be together, we should all be unified, we should all seek out this community. And, and what's interesting is that we would probably all say that. Even in that survey that just went out, I'm sure that the vast majority of us, if we're like the 915, the vast majority of us said, yes, this is a good thing. Community is important. Studying the Bible with other people is important. It's important to gather with others for the sake of knowing the Lord and making him known. Absolutely. And yet the reality is that time and time again, we find ourselves failing to see it play out in our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was this famous preacher, uh, pastor, writer, uh, who was ministering in uh, uh, Germany, uh, right around the time of World War II. And he wrote a book called Life Together, uh, where he talks about Christian community. And he begins to talk about what holds us back from finding that community in our lives. And it's beautiful. He says that the person who loves their dream of community will ultimately just destroy community. But the person who loves the people around them, that's the person who's actually going to create community. He was writing to his audience in the 40s, and yet what's beautiful is it hits us right where we're at. We as a culture can get so consumed with imagining what community might be, imagining what it should be. And I think so many times that happens on a screen that's on our tabletop or it's in our pocket. So many times we find ourselves leaning into social media and using this as an opportunity to create this imaginary, ideal community that just simply doesn't move us 
forward. There's been so many studies over the past decade as social media continues to rise in its use, in its, in its widespreadness. And what they're finding time and time again is that this is a thing that can be really destructive. That people that lean too hard into social media, into, into creating kind of these, these, these platforms, into creating these digital communities, what they're finding is that it's not only addictive, right? It's not only something that will steal your time where the majority of smartphone owners, like the first thing they do in the morning is they look at a feed or they look at a post. They make sure that they're up to date on what's happening through these different platforms. But they're finding that it's also creating this gap in our lives where we're increasingly less and less satisfied with our day-to-day lives, with our, with our overall just status in the world. The University of Michigan just put out a, a study that was talking about how, yeah, there's this increasing dissatisfaction with our lives that is correlated with this increasing usage of social media. And what's happening is that as we're in consuming these things, as we're looking at these communities, it's creating a higher perceived isolation, right? Forbes put out this beautiful kind of meta survey where they, they gathered all these different surveys and, and informations and studies, and they kind of distill all the data just this past summer. And, and what they were saying was that it creates this increased perception of isolation. And perceived isolation is one of the worst things you can have for your mental and emotional well-being, But just by nature of looking at a community on a screen, by nature of that that action, you're not in it, right? Like you're already at a distance from that community. And so you're beginning to perceive, whether it's true or not, you're beginning to perceive yourself as more and more isolated. And that hurts us, that, 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 that destroys us. Why? Because we need positive bonds with other people, right? We're designed to need healthy community. And so as we continually feel more and more isolated, what's so tragic is that it's, it's not quite clicking. It's not sinking in. The, the University of Innsbruck in Austria did a study just this past year where they were looking at how people have these false forecasts in their mind consistently associated with social media, meaning what would happen is they would talk with all these individuals, and they, would, they were doing this kind of on social media as a whole. They were focusing in on Facebook a lot in particular, and the, they would ask all these uh, participants in the study, they'd be like, hey, like, how do you think you're going to feel, right? They're like, forecast for us. How do you think you're going to feel after you use the social media platform, after you spend 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, looking through those posts or clicking some links or liking some content, how do you think you're going to feel? Time and time again, people are like, oh, I'm going to do, I'll feel better, right? Like, I'm, I have this space in my schedule, and this is a great way to fill it, or I'm kind of feeling down, and so this will give me a good boost just to kind of be more connected with people again. And what they found was time and time again, that was false, that over and over and over again, these people, they would, they would consume, and then they would feel worse. And yet they would ask him again the next day or the next week, hey, how do you think you're going to feel? They'd be like, no, 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 I think it's really going to help. Like, I think I'm going to do better. And, and time and time again, it was this delusion that we were buying into. And social media as a whole, it's not this horrific thing that has to be avoided at all costs. Don't hear me say that. It has wonderful uses and benefits. But if we're leaning into that wholeheartedly, if that's where we think we're going to find our best community, if that's what we think is going to move us forward, if that's where we think true intimacy is found, we're fooling ourselves. It's a a sugar pill. If anything, it's going to hurt our sense of intimacy, our our sense of belonging, our, our sense of community. 
We have to be careful that we're not so caught up in this dream of community that we actually wind up destroying what we have around us. We have to tear our gaze away from the screen, stand up and initiate with other people, draw near to the Lord, draw near to each other. See, the best community, it's going to compel you towards each other. It's going to compel you towards Jesus. That's why we want to create so many opportunities for you to find community. We have moments like this. We want you to be a part of a large community of people from different backgrounds uh, and different, different heritages, different families, different work environments, different, different majors. We want you to be able to join together in the midst of this diverse crowd and, and be unified under the name of Jesus. And I, I want that for you. I, I hope that we're able to create something that's compelling and somewhere where you feel welcomed and connected. That is our 100% goal on Sunday mornings. But beyond this, I want you to be a part of a community that's small. I want you to be able to walk into a room where you know everyone's name, and you know where they're coming from, and you know where they're going. You need to be able to have a community where you are known, where you're valued, where you're encouraged, where you can find intimacy with these other people as you seek to draw more into the intimacy that you can find with the Lord. Being a part of a small group here at Grace. Being a part of a small group somewhere else. Man, we want to create opportunities for this intimacy because ultimately as you're a part of that, as you continue to lean into that community, it, it, it's inspiring, right? It, it's something that moves you forward. That's what we see unpacked in Hebrews is that the best community, it, it, it will change you, right? We should hold fast to this unwa- or hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess for the one who made the promise is trustworthy and let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works. In other words, the best community is going to call you out and it's going to call you forward. The best community is going to make everyone better. It's going to change you. You need a community that's going to spur you on. In other words, you need a community that's going to hold you accountable, that's going to call you out of sin and out of destruction, that's going to call you away from things that are going to hurt you and call you towards things that are beneficial, that are good, that bring joy in life. We need people to call us out on our junk, right? We need that. Bag up, bag up. Bag up, Terry. Put it reverse, Terry. Put it reverse. Oh, Lord. Lord, Jesus. That is the best community, right? We need that. We need people who are going to call us away from the exploding fireworks, right? We need people in our lives that are going to call us out on our junk. We need people that are going to call us forward away from things that can bring destruction and harm to our lives. That's what Bonhoeffer gets at. Again, it's still in life together. He says, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Right? There's nothing more loving than to call someone out of destruction, to call someone out of that, to, to help them, to pull them out, to say, hey, I'm here for you and I wanna, I wanna hold you accountable. I wanna, I wanna bring you out of these things that are gonna lead to destruction, that are gonna lead to, to just dark things in your future because you know what? There's nothing more tragically horrible and cruel than to let someone just keep on going. 
to just give them the leniency that abandons them to their sin. There is nothing more cruel that you can do than to allow people to keep moving forward on a path you know is leading to destruction. And yet there's something in us that pulls away from those moments. Right? There's something within us that's afraid to be honest with ourselves or with others. There's a part of us that says, I don't want to have that tough conversation. And we fool ourselves into thinking, maybe, maybe it's more loving if I just kind of stay at a distance and I just let them kind of do their thing and then I, I'll talk to them if they come to me. Like, it's just not true. James tells us that we should be confessing our sins not only to the Lord, but to each other. Why? Because Proverbs tells us that iron sharpens iron. Brothers can sharpen brothers. Sisters can sharpen sisters. We can sharpen one another. The best community is going to make us all better. That's why we have opportunities here at Grace, even just, just moments and ministries where people get together uh, for things like Celebrate Recovery, where it says, hey, we're going to keep you accountable to help you come out of this addiction that, that's running your life. Or we have moments like Grief Share, where we say, hey, we want to walk alongside of you and encourage you as you're struggling through this process of grief. Or, or we have moments like Merge, where we say, yeah, if you're dating, if you're seriously, or if you're engaged, man, we want you to come and listen to an older couple who can guide you, who can keep you accountable, who can point out, hey, there are pitfalls ahead of you. There are dangers on the road. And I want to help you avoid those things. And it might be a tough conversation. It might be an awkward moment where you have to sit down with your roommate and say, man, I've got these issues and I need you to help me with that. And yet the best community is going to make you better. That's the purpose. We need those people in our lives to call us out of destruction, but also to call us forward into life, right? There should be accountability. There should also be activity, man. There should be a movement forward within our midst, within our communities. Back in the mid-third century, uh, there was the plague of Cyprian, about 251 to 266 AD, the plague of Cyprian was this disease, this, this, uh, this, this sickness that swept through the Roman Empire. And it was decimating the city of Rome. It was decimating the city of Alexandria over in Egypt. It was just wrecking shop across this empire. And over the span of these years, as this, um, as this plague was just hitting the people and killing people, man, it was, it was estimated at one point that uh, during a lot of those years that 5,000 people were dying in Rome every day. Okay, 5,000 were dying every day as a result of this plague. That about two-thirds of the city of Alexandria died because of this plague. In the midst of this, people were just scared. Right? People were terrified. People were fleeing those cities. They said, if I stay here, I'm going to die, so i got to go. And yet in the middle of the mass exodus, over the span of those 15 years, what was so incredible was that the Christians stayed. And that the Christians not only stayed, but they served. That they moved towards the hurting and the sick and the dying. That they would bring them water and they'd bring them food. And that through their ministry, a lot of lives were saved. There were so many people that they didn't have the plague, but they were just kind of sick and they were abandoned because other people were afraid that they had the plague. And so they just they ran out of them. And just Christians just simply bringing water to these people that were lying in the streets. It was enough to, to nurse them to health, to bring them back. To, to being fit again. 
And what was so incredible in that time was that the name of Christianity, the followers of the way as they were known, man, that name went forward so fast and so far. The Lord used that strife. He used that activity, that, 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 that movement to bring more and more glory to his name, to bring more and more followers under the banner of Jesus Christ. As the relief efforts continue down on the coast in Houston, Baytown, all that area, what's incredible is that there's certain kind of like uh, unifying organizations that say like, hey, um, you know, they're collecting all the information about the people that are serving and helping, the hours that are logged or the, the number of people that are coming, the resources that are being put into use, what's being brought, that kind of stuff. And what they're finding, USA Today was talking about how they were kind of looking at the, the serving, the relief effort as a whole. And what they've seen just recently is that so far, about 80%, okay, about 80% of the relief effort, the people, the hours, the resources, all that stuff, about 80% has come from faith-based communities. And the vast majority of them are evangelical Christian churches. How beautiful is that? As Greg Mott said, pastor of Houston's First uh, down in the area, he said that as the waters recede, the church will rise. He says, this is our moment. This is our opportunity to spur one another on to love and good works, not just for our sake, but for the sake of our world, for the sake of our community at large. We're able to see the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed and glorified and thrown out there because we shouldn't be afraid to put our faith to work, right? The best community is going to compel you out of sin and into serving. That's why we want opportunities for you to join into community. That's why we want opportunities for you to serve. If you want to put your gifts to use, if you want to use the, the abilities that God has given you to, to benefit his body, to benefit his world, then, then we want to help you with that. You should talk with one of our leaders. You should talk with me. We can get you plugged in to serving with children or youth or, or the community at large. You can serve here in college. We have so many wonderful individuals who are wearing badges or they're wearing t-shirts and they're showing up early to help you get connected here at Grace. And you can be a part of that. We would love to put your talents to use for the benefit of building up the body, for the benefit of spurring even more people on towards love and good works, because that's what the best community does. It inspires you to move. And yet what's challenging, what's difficult, is that even as this community that, that's so intimate and, and wonderful, this community that's so inspiring, that moves you forward, the reality is that there's still imperfection, right? That there's still frustration. That's why the author even wraps up this little piece by saying that, hey, don't abandon our own meetings as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and even more so because you see the day drawing near. He says, hey, don't give up on meeting together. Why would he say that? Because he knows, hey, there's gonna be a temptation in your heart, in your mind, in your, in your schedule, on your calendar that you keep on your uh, stone tablet, I guess. Like there's gonna be a temptation for you to abandon these meetings, to abandon these people, to, to lose commitment to this community. He says, don't do that. He says, you're gonna see other people do it. So it's gonna feel really easy just to stay home, to just not go out, just not go to that meeting, to not go to that study, to, to not go to this, this gathering of other like-minded believers. He says, man, don't do it. 
Why? Because the best community, it, it has this commitment to it. It overcomes these imperfections. But again, it's hard because people are messy, right? People are difficult. People are weird. Some of us have roommates that are really weird, right? We know that. And you're like, no, they're all normal. You're the weird roommate. Like, that's you then. <laughs> Some of us have people in our lives where we say, this person is difficult. You might have a roommate who turns off the lights every night and says, good night, Ava, even though your name is not Ava. What is that even? There's people that when they get so mad, they'll say, now don't you go baking my beans. That's not a weird roommate. That's a good roommate. You want that guy in your house. People can be messy and difficult. Sometimes you might find yourself with a guy who keeps using your mustache comb to comb his hair, and when you confront him, he just says, bro, you have to hide it from me. <laughs> I, I love this mysterious bearded man. He, that's, that's amazing. The self-awareness is so powerful. Like you are going to find that there are people in your life that are just messy. I see this in my home with my roommates. I have two small roommates, uh, one named Charlotte, one named Lawrence, uh, my son and daughter. Charlotte is uh, about, she's almost three, and my son Lawrence is seven months old. They enjoy Target. Uh, and they, they are messy. They are weird, messy people. Yesterday, just yesterday, I, I said these words. I said this. I'm in a stage of life where I had to say Charlotte, don't touch that bird poop. Charlotte, stop. No. Charlotte, no, don't touch the bird poop. Charlotte, stop. Because she just wanted to touch bird poop. I, I found myself then having to say, Charlotte, don't touch your brother with that bird poop. Charlotte, don't put that bird poop on Lawrence. Charlotte, no, no, Charlotte, stop, stop, no, no. And like I had to intervene because my daughter is weird and messy. She wants to put bird poop on her hands and on her brother's face. That is just who she is. That's what she does. Some of us are like, yeah, I got that roommate. Like, that's, that's, that's hard. I see it in my home. I see it with my kids. I see it with my home group. I see it with the 10-ish couples that I gather with on a weekly basis to draw closer to the Lord, to draw closer to each other. And, and what I find in those moments is that people are messy. There's a lot less bird poop, praise God. But there's more just kind of life poop, Right? There is more complications and issues and struggles that come about when people are struggling through things with work or with their families or they're dealing with the after effects of divorce or they're struggling with infertility or they just had an incredibly draining loss of a loved one. People are messy. People are broken. People are going to make mistakes that hurt us. That's why we have to remember that, hey, it happens, right? Sin is in our midst. That's why I love Bonhoeffer points out that it may be that Christians, notwithstanding, they're, they're in corporate worship, they're in common prayer, they have all this fellowship, they're going to still be left to their loneliness. Just even as they're meeting together in all these different ways, they can still feel lonely. Why? Because the final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because they, they have this fellowship with one another as believers, as devout people, but they don't have this fellowship as the undevout. They don't have this fellowship as sinners. He says the, the pious fellowship, it permits no one to be a sinner. And so everyone just conceals the sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Some of us have found ourselves in community that feels like this. 
Or we grew up in homes, or we grew up in churches, we grew up in communities where it felt like we had to hide our sin, we had to hide these struggles, not only from ourselves, but from the people around us. We were delusional and divided without even knowing it. And yet many Christians are then unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. And so we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. But the fact is that we are sinners. Says this is an unavoidable truth. And if you're walking through life, if you're stepping into community and you think that maybe everyone can just put on a good face and hide all these different things, and they can just kind of move forward and just, oh, let's just put that in a corner and let's never talk about that. And oh. I mean, I, I know a lot of us grew up in homes like that. We grew up in churches like that. We grew up with friend groups like that. And the reality is that if we do that, if we live in that way, we're not finding the best that community has to offer. We're not finding the best community that, that God has provided for us, that God has instructed and pointed us towards. He says, you can have a community where you are known and where you are loved. Why? Because Love covers a multitude of sins. First Peter tells us you need to love one another because there's going to be sins in your midst. And if you want to cover that up, man, it's, it's love. That's why James tells us, or sorry, that's why Paul tells us in Colossians that we have to bear with one another. Right? That's the idea of you're carrying the burden of one another and you're forgiving each other if someone happens to have a complaint against anyone else. For just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive others. He says, if you are trying to hide these issues, you are withholding the opportunity for grace to abound. You are withholding the opportunity for forgiveness to take place, for, for beautiful, beautiful forgiveness and love to pour out over the sins that enter into your midst. He says, don't try to hide those things. It's just gonna divide you. It's just gonna isolate you. And you're missing out on the best that community has to offer. Man, I've never seen communities more wonderful. I've never felt the benefits of community more than the moments when I've had to sit down with a brother and just hash it out. Apologize. Own up to the fact that, that I did this thing or I said this stuff or I, I pushed him that way or I made him feel this, whatever it might be. And what's so incredibly beautiful about those moments isn't just that we just get it out there and it's like, oh yeah, how about that? Oh, we're all terrible. It's the fact that we have those moments where we shine light on what's happened and then we look at it with the truth that Jesus Christ died for those sins. We're able to look at each other across that table, across that living room, eye to eye, face to face, and say, you know what? Jesus Christ died for that. We wronged each other. We did these things. And yet, you know what? God has forgiven us of so much. God has given us so much grace and so much love. How could we ever not give that to each other? Because we've been forgiven, how could we ever not forgive? That's what we see repeatedly through Scripture. That we have this beautiful gospel that Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for the world. That even as he's being crucified and murdered, even though he had done nothing wrong, he was praying for the people around him who were spitting on him and yelling at him and driving those nails into his hands, watching him suffer and die slowly. He says, God, I want you to forgive these people because they don't even know what they're doing. 
He says they're so deep in their sin, they don't know what's true. And so I'm able to sit across the table from a brother or from a sister, and I say, you know what? I love you, and I'm sorry that I hurt you, or you hurt me, but you know what? I forgive you. Because ultimately, we have a bond that transcends our own brokenness. We have a fellowship that goes beyond our own mistakes and our own faults. We say, you know what? I can forgive you because Christ has already paid the debt that that wrong incurred. We can love each other and maintain this fellowship because Jesus Christ has given us something so much bigger than our brokenness. He has created a community that's so much better than anything else this world has to offer. And family is forever. And we're family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and that's going to be true now. That's going to be true for all of eternity. We're going to stand together praising God for all of eternity. So why would we let this one mistake or this habitual problem, why would we let this thing drive us apart? If you haven't experienced that type of community, you need to find it. We have it here. We can point you in directions. I mean, we can help you find this community that's bigger and better than anything else this world has to offer. A community that's founded on intimacy, on inspiration, a community that's still imperfect, and yet in that imperfection, it compels us towards forgiveness and it compels us towards thankfulness for the God who forgave us. That's why this morning we're going to close out with communion. We're taking a moment to come and just remember what Christ has done. That's what communion is. Jesus gave it to his disciples and he says, this is a way for you to remember what I've done, when Paul describes communion to the, to the, to the body in, in Corinth, he says, this is what you do. You, you follow Jesus' words to, to take the bread that, that, that helps you remember that his body was broken on your behalf. You, you take the wine, you take the cup that signifies the blood that was spilled so that you might be cleansed, so that you could have relationship with the God of the universe. He says, you take these things, and in doing so, you remember what Christ has done. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, that's why we do communion. That's what we have community for, to encourage one another, to spur one another towards love and good works. That's why this morning, as we have these final couple songs, there's gonna be an opportunity for you to come to the back or the front to take communion. And it's just an opportunity to come and celebrate that we've been forgiven, that Christ has gone ahead of us. And so we can go forward as people who forgive, who love, who draw close to the Lord and also to one another. So let's pray and ask the Lord to guide us in this time. Lord, we thank you that you've given us, Lord, this beautiful, this beautiful practice of communion. God, we ask that you would show us where it is that, that our community is lacking. God, maybe it's, we don't have community with you, Lord. We, we don't have relationship with you. We're not sure where we stand uh, on this Jesus thing. We've never trusted in him for, for the forgiveness of our sins. If that's you, I'd encourage you just to pray. Say, God, I, I'm not sure who you are, or what's going on, but God, I, I wanna have a conversation with a person about this. With a, a leader that's here or with a friend that brought me. But ask the Lord, God, give me, give me an opportunity to talk more with people about this truth, about this whole Jesus thing, about this community. Some of us, we say, man, I'm, I'm in the family of God, but, but I don't know where my community is right now at this moment. 
I don't have people that, that know me, where I'm known, where I'm valued, where I can, be, where I can trust them and, and walk forward with them. You pray and say, God, show me where is that? God, raise up opportunities for me to, to find those people, to find that environment, to create it with my roommates or to, to form it with these people in my organization, to jump into this small group, this Bible study that's been established by a, a church or an organization, whatever it is. For some of us, maybe it's we, we know where we are. We're, we're in a community and we just say, God, I need you to help me press in even more. Lord, I, I need you to spur me on, to spur others on. Lord, I, I need you to work and, and let me be even more committed to the community that you've already raised up. Wherever you are, take a moment, pray to the Lord, say, God, help me move forward. Take the next step. Pray those things right now.